You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Inside China. I'm Yondan Latu, managing editor of content here at the South China Morning Post and host of Talking Post, our signature interview series. You're about to hear from Chui Tiangkai, China's longest-serving ambassador to the U.S. He finished his eight-year tenure as Beijing's top envoy to Washington in 2021, but since then has been active in back-channel diplomacy and non-official exchanges between the two countries. Chui continues to be a relatively moderate voice in the increasingly tense conversation between the two powers. He's a shrewd observer as well as a straight talker. Here is our full conversation. Okay, so Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us. Let's jump right into it. The most important relationship in the world,、mm-hmm. China with or versus the U.S. Before you officially stepped down as、uh, Ambassador to the U.S., you said that relations between China and the U.S. were at a crossroads.、Yeah. Since then, that was quite some years ago. Since then, I think we've we're not only、uh, moved beyond the crossroads phrase, but、uh, we're actually at some kind of precipice. The way things are going on, where do you think we are right now, and where are we going to go at this rate? I think the two countries are still in this maybe historic stage or period of redefining the relations or finding a correct way of dealing with each other going forward. We are still. This is not done yet. We are still in this stage. But that's a, that's a long、uh, time to spend just figuring out how to go, and given all the risks and the potential、uh, pitfalls. Well, for such a complex relationship, maybe we need some time to to do this. But this is an ongoing process. I don't think people can say, "Well, we just done all this, now everything will be fine going forward." There will be new difficulties, new problems. So I think the real strength of China-U.S. relation is not that we never have problems. The real strength of this relationship is that sooner or later, the two countries always find ways of overcome the difficulties and move the relations forward. You have the U.S. presidential election coming up next year. Whether it's going to be a showdown between、uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, or neither of them,、uh, given the circumstances,、uh, we we don't need to get into that. Where neither of them may end up actually running for president. But、uh, even the other people, the potential contenders, if you listen to the talk, it's it's very very vitriolic, anti-China, almost militant. So whoever wins this election. What's going to happen with China relations? We have no illusions that the outcome of the next year's election would bring about major or fundamental changes to the relationship. But I think they are too much influenced by the so-called political correctness, and such craziness is certainly not in the interest of the United States itself. You know, given how strongly China feels about the Taiwan issue in particular, China's sovereignty over Taiwan, this has now become、uh, the go-to pricking point that、uh, U.S. politicians use against China, right? And if you listen to the presidential debates, everyone seems to be outdoing, trying to outdo each other on how militant I'm going to be 
about China regarding Taiwan. And uh, they talk about war. So I want to ask this. Is there a real chance of a war with Taiwan, or does China have the kind of wisdom and patience that's almost infinite? Because you're constantly prodding the panda here from the US. And they're testing the limits of how far tolerance will go. Is China's tolerance in unlimited, or is there going to be a problem in the end? You see, for us Chinese, the Taiwan question is a matter of national sovereignty, territorial integrity, and national unity. So this is something like a life and death question for, for China. So there's really no room for concession for us. I'm quite sure this is a national determination that sooner or later China will achieve this reunification one way or another. Of course, our preference is through peaceful reunification. But we in China, we have sufficient wisdom to manage this very challenging question and achieve the result and meet the expectation of our people. I just hope that on the United States side, US politicians would also have sufficient wisdom or even common sense not to advocate for war so easily. Do they understand what war would mean to anybody? Not only to us, but also to themselves, to the American people. Do American people really enjoy war? I don't think so. Well, to look at it right now with Ukraine and with Gaza, I mean, maybe there are some people who actually enjoy war. Yeah, you see, but people of other countries are killed. Maybe some when people... When it comes to your own uh, soldiers at risk, then it might, it might yeah, be a different Yeah, of course, there, there are people who are making a lot of money from these wars. Yes. But I don't think this really serves the interests of the American people. You said one way or the other, China's reunification with Taiwan. Uh, and peaceful reunification, I understand, is the watchword. That's your default status. But one way or the other, the other is war. What kind of circumstances, what kind of provocation will be too much for China where this, and I hope this never happens because it's the end of the world if, if it does happen, but what will be that tipping point? I think the key is the one China principle. As long as this principle is still there, as long as nobody is trying to challenge this one China principle, there's no need for the use of force. And under that basis, within the framework of one China principle, everything else could be negotiated. But if this one China principle is undermined, is challenged, then the risk of war would increase very much. But isn't that what's happening right now? They are challenging this one China principle. The constant huge weapons sales to Taiwan. Exactly. The top exactly. US politicians deliberately going there. Exactly. They, yeah. They're testing China's patience. So that, they are challenging. That's why we are warning them they should stop. They should not go down this road any further. Are you personally hopeful that there will be a peaceful solution? We will do whatever we can for a peaceful solution. We have the U.S.-China uh, summit as well, the presidential summit. The meeting between uh, President Xi Jinping and uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, whether something concrete, tangible, is achieved or not, the big plus is at least the two sides are talking. I mean, there's no disputing that. 
But beyond that, in practical terms, and you as a diplomat and a veteran diplomat understand this, how much, how significant is it? How important is it? Or is this just a talk show? You see, meetings between the two presidents are always important because this is at the top level. It gives strategic guidance to the relationship to go forward. You see, almost every time there will be a number of agreements that areas where we could have further cooperation and better coordination, there are always these things. But what is even more important than such specific areas is the uh, mutual understanding that the two great countries have to find the right way of dealing with each other. We should not have confrontation or conflict. We should not see each other as uh, enemies or rivals or even so-called competitors. We should base ourselves on mutual respect and aim at peaceful coexistence and winning cooperation. This kind of a progress, the mutual understanding, I think that these things are even more important than cooperation in specific areas. You know, when you talk about mutual understanding and respect, the former Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, he made some very interesting points. And, and his, his main beef with the way the world is going right now is the lack of diplomacy. That there used to be a time when countries like China and the US would not agree with each other on fundamental principles. Mm -hmm. But there was a basic courtesy. There was a talk, there, you know, the whole word diplomacy. And he was bemoaning the loss of that, that diplomacy is gone. Now, when a wise man like that talks, you're instantly shut down and you're instantly shouted down. So, you know, he's been nicknamed Peking Paul. He's, you know, he's some big uh, sympathizer uh, with China. Whereas he was just talking about diplomacy has gone. D do you find that? I think diplomacy is very much challenged by a number of things. First, the rise of nationalistic sentiments in many parts of the world. Number two, the growth of social media. Everybody is speaking up. And some, some people do this in a not so responsible way. So diplomacy is very much challenging. But still, I think the world needs diplomacy. You're not officially uh, holding a position in terms of diplomacy anymore, but you're an elder statesman, and I'm not referring to your age. You're an elder statesman when it comes to uh, back-channel diplomacy. You're doing some important work networking uh, with people, and, and the whole the whole point of it is to have the conversation going so that it does the relationship doesn't collapse. So from your back-channel diplomacy, you know, our colleagues have gone to the US and they've spoken to important and influential people. And the impression they get, the distinct impression, is that when these officials, these academics, uh, these influential people talk to us, they are quite understanding of what's going on and the rhetoric the, the narrative is very different from what you see in the media and what the politicians say, because that is just, is just a race to the bottom on who can be the most anti-China. So when you talk in your diplomatic channels, is it the same thing that they will say the things that you would like them to say, and there's a polite conversation and there's a civilized discussion, but uh, the minute they have to face the cameras, are, there's a certain narrative they have to take, so that's it. Yeah, I think it's very unfortunate that people should behave that way, but Still, I still have confidence that most people are rational. You see, a few days ago, I met with Professor Joseph Nye in San Francisco. 
I suggest to him, as, as a professor, you propose the idea of soft power, smart power. Maybe we could have one more term, wise power. And I still believe that sooner or later, the voice of reason would prevail. Moving beyond the uh, China-U.S. relationship, uh, China's relationship with the wider world, China has been uh, making a lot of moves in terms of playing a peacemaking role. You saw that with uh, its efforts in Ukraine. And now we're, the Ukraine war is very much underway, and people seem to have forgotten that, but it's still going on. But now all our attention is focused on what's happening in Gaza and what Israel is doing to Gaza, and these thousands of people being killed and you know, carpet bombed. Do you realistically believe that China can play some role there where we can have peace in the Middle East? Or is this just, just wishful thinking, given the huge uh, credibility deficit that China has? Not necessarily China's fault, but there is a credibility deficit where people can't take seriously that China is a peacemaker. I don't know why people can't take it seriously. We have been advocating for peace all along, whether on Ukraine situation, on the Middle East, or elsewhere. I told my American friends, when you start the war in Kosovo, we emphasize the respect for national sovereignty. We want to have peace. When you invaded Iraq, Syria, Libya, we made the same points. Now on Ukraine, you are reading our talking points. But this has been our consistent position all along. And you see, this month, the month of November, China is president of the Security Council of the United Nations. Our ambassador there, he is a longtime colleague and friend of mine. He's making his utmost efforts, try to promote peace, try to help the council to pass resolution for peace, for ceasefire. Of course, he's running into great difficulty, but he's still making his utmost efforts. And besides, China now is the largest troop contributor to all the United Nations peacekeeping operations. We are the second largest fund contributor to all the UN expenses. So we are making real efforts. We are doing all these real things for global peace and development. If you listen to the global narrative, especially in the mainstream media, you hear this phrase all the time, the China threat. It's always the China threat. The China threat, this China's behavior, China's threat, the China threat. Can you explain to our audience, how much of a threat China really is or not? I think it's up to them to explain why they have such a bias. Well, they look at uh, what China is doing in the South China Sea, for example. First of all, if you look at the map, South China Sea is far from the United States. It's just at China's doorstep. And we have long-standing position on the sovereignty over some of the islands. And actually, without interference from United States or other countries, between China and the ASEAN claimant countries, we've had years of peaceful negotiations, and we work together on the Declaration of Conduct. Now we are working on the Code of Conduct. So without external interference, it's quite possible for China and the relevant ASEAN countries, countries like the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, to manage the situation, maybe gradually find a solution to territorial disputes. But with external interference, especially with mounting military activity, military presence of the United States in the region, 
things are getting much more complicated and much more difficult to solve. I mean, I think you can grant China this much, which is when it comes to the China threat. China doesn't have hundreds of military bases surrounding exactly. other countries. Exactly. China doesn't have a warship uh, off the coast of uh, California, yeah. Yeah. but the U.S. does off the coast yeah. of China. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're talking about peace, this uh, term that is becoming a little more fashionable now, uh, the global south. So the global south as a force for change, a force for peace, and a force to counter the dominant narrative of the West. Do you believe in this Global South Alliance? Yeah, China has always been part of the Global South. So we are part of the Global South. We stand together with them on most of the global issues, and we do have common interests. But being a part of this Global South, India is also a part of this uh, equation. And both India and China, uh, you, know, you have one and a half billion people each. But India and China are not getting along. So that is a real detriment to this, what could be a real force for change, couldn't it? Well, the so-called Global South has so many countries. And of course, these countries do not always see many things eye to eye with each other. There are differences among the developing countries themselves. But I think on the global stage and in the long run, we have a common goal that we should make the international order more equitable, more just, and reflecting and responding to the needs and aspirations of the developing countries more. When it comes to the China-India relationship, uh, allow me to talk about my personal stake in it. So I'm a Chinese citizen. I'm a Hong Kong resident, but I was born in India. So I'm among these many people that when I need to go home, to India to visit my loved ones. There is always some visa issue. And this is the trickle-down effect of politics being played at the top. And the victims are people like me. And there are hundreds of thousands of people like me, not just Chinese people who need to go to India for various reasons. I have loved ones here, and I have loved ones across the border there as well. It's the same thing with hundreds or thousands of Indian people who need to go to China. And these are people on the streets. These are working people. These are business people. These are academics. And they need to get along on a practical level. So why can't these two countries get along? Well, we have a very complicated relationship with India. But I think, that, to be fair, China never provoked anything. We never initiate. But India would beg to differ when it comes to the border disputes. Border disputes, you see, for many, many centuries, there was no border dispute between China and India. Then the British came. Then we had the border disputes. But this has to be worked out through peaceful negotiations. I myself, when I was doing Asian affairs, spent a lot of time working with our Indian colleagues on the border issue. And there was a general agreement between the two governments that while this is a very sensitive and difficult issue, and it might require more time, we should not allow the whole relationship be hijacked by this particular issue. And even along the border, we have disputes, of course, but we should maintain peace and tranquility in the area. You know how uh, nationalism now is the watchword? I mean, you can see it happening in every country. All these countries are getting much more nationalistic. You see a lot of that in the US. The belligerence against China is just based on that. There's a lot of that in India as well. 
but it's happening in China as well. So on the one hand, people being patriotic and uh, standing up for their country's rights. But on the other hand, nationalism can be hugely counterproductive. So it can lead to war. So is there a danger even in China that nationalism can drown the voices of reason? Because so far you've seen reason on China's, uh, you've seen patience from China's side. But I go back to my original question, even when it comes to Taiwan, what are the limits? And especially with the nationalist voices rising. Well, you see, I cannot speak on behalf of other countries, but for China, so far, you see, China is a big country. We have 1.4 billion people, so there are all kinds of views. And some people could go to extreme. But I think on the whole, most of the people are still rational people, and especially for the government, for the leadership. They have a clear understanding of China's real interests, the long-term national interest. And still, the policies are very realistic, very constructive, based on the very accurate perception of China's reality and China's needs going forward. So I'm not very worried about China itself. I'm quite worried about some of the other countries. But of course, they are very sensitive, very important issues, like the Taiwan question. Again, as far as national unity and sovereignty is concerned, this is a life and death for all Chinese. So we, are, we have to be prepared to do anything to defend our national sovereignty, and sometimes even make big sacrifice. But this core interest outweighs everything else. Let's talk about uh, technology a little bit, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, you know that the, the US and its allies are determined to curb any growth and any progress in, uh, in terms of what China is doing in technology, artificial intelligence in particular. Do you have any views about how uh, China is going to overcome this and how China can make a meaningful contribution to the rest of the world with AI, not only to itself? I think technological progress, including in particular AI, should serve the interests of the entire human race. So all countries, all nations in the world should be able to benefit from such a technological progress. I don't think anybody should try to have a monopoly over this or try to uh, make this new technology serve very narrowly defined their national interests. And we also need international rules. We maybe need the United Nations. But between China and the United States, we are ready to have communication with the US, whether between governments or between uh, business or think tanks. First of all, to promote some good understanding of this new technology. There's a lot of uh, illusions or stories or misunderstanding of this new technology. What this can do and what this should do. And how can we manage this as such progress? How can we make sure that the new technology will really serve the interests of human beings? In other words, we should not allow AI or any other technology to be master of the human race. We should make sure they all serve the benefit of the entire international community. There's no danger of having that, uh, that happening in China, is it? Where the machines become the masters. 
given how fast China is advancing in this particular aspect? I think so far, if we look at human history, so far, all the technological progress has been tools of human race, has been tools for human progress. I hope on the uh, AI we could, we could do the same thing. You mentioned the role of the United Nations. I have to ask, is the UN even relevant anymore? It seems to be, all I hear is little bleating sounds from the United Nations, but there are full-blown wars going on. In Gaza, you know, thousands of children are being massacred, yeah. and the UN keeps speaking about it, but nothing's happening. Well, if you look at the majority of the UN members, it's quite clear. They want to stop the fighting, stop the killing, but the United States vetoed some of the draft in the Security Council. And the same thing has happened elsewhere. For instance, almost every year for the last few decades, United Nations General Assembly would have a draft resolution calling on the United States to remove its embargo against Cuba. I think this year the vote is more than 180 or 90 years. And only the United States and Israel voted against it. So it's very unfair to the majority, overwhelming majority of the international community. So we want to make the United Nations more effective, work better, but we have to deal with this kind of unilateralism. You're in Hong Kong now, and uh, of course you recall what happened to Hong Kong in 2019 and uh, 2020 with all the uh, anti-government protests, the anti-China sentiment. Things have changed uh, dramatically since then. Our government has taken a grip on the situation. So things have changed for the better, I would say, in terms of law and order, at least, and in terms of blatant anti-China activities on the streets of Hong Kong. But things have also changed to an extent where it's causing a lot of anxiety, justified or not. The anxiety is real, especially among the international community. And Hong Kong, in particular, is an international city. So business sentiment, investment in Hong Kong, all of that the people who are coming into Hong Kong or pulling out of Hong Kong, whether their concerns are justified or not, their concerns are real. How do you feel about that? And the success of this city and the continuing prosperity of this city given this obstacle that we have to overcome? I think Hong Kong still has all its strengths. You have very good economic infrastructure, you have very developed financial market, you have all the institutions and you are so open. So the strength is there. And Hong Kong's ties with the mainland is a plus for Hong Kong. People should realize this. Because you are supported, you are part of the great China market, a growing market. And I don't think very many other economies have, have this kind of a special advantage. But of course, for some of the Western media, they give people a very different picture, which is not based on the realities of Hong Kong. Maybe for some time, this could be quite misleading. This could have some uh, bad influence on people's perception of Hong Kong. But as long as Hong Kong is continuing to make things better, Hong Kong's economy continues to grow, you have better stability, as long as Hong Kong is doing a good job, I think people will be coming back. Actually, we, ha we used to have similar situations in the past, before the handover 
1997. Some people also left Hong Kong and they were not sure about what will happen after 1997. Then eventually they came back. Hong Kong is much better than before. Uh, I think as long as we do our own job well, such false stories, such uh, speculation, rumors will not last very long. Well, Hong Kong can do its job, but uh, the reality is that uh, this city is the Achilles heel of China in terms of uh, anyone wants to get at China, uses this city, as you saw in 2019 and 2020. But anyway, um, going back to your diplomatic experience as well in dealing with all these issues and with the US in particular, is this the worst you've seen or have you seen worse? What I'm trying to get at is how bad is it and how bad is it going to be? Well, I certainly hope that the worst will not come true. But if you look at history, in the 1950s, China and the United States fought against each other in the Korean War. And even for the Vietnam War, it was basically between China and the United States, but not, not in a so direct way. So I have warned my American friends, don't talk about so-called the new Cold War so easily. In the old Cold War, the two biggest hot wars were fought in Asia between China and the United States. So we should not allow history to repeat itself. Okay, on that hopeful note, Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and uh, we wish you all the best that you carry on doing the great work you're doing with your diplomatic back channels that you will uh, never retire, even if you officially have retired. Thank you very much. I think I should enjoy my retirement. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Inside China. Don't forget the Talking Post video version of this interview is available on scmp.com. Take care and bye for now. <laughs>